1: shop now in store or online kroger fresh for everyone
0: spectrum internet has enough speed to handle all your needs so you can work game and stream with speeds up to a gig plus spectrum's advanced wi-fi provides enhanced security for all your connected devices get spectrum internet with fast and reliable speeds starting at just 29 dollars 29.99 a month with a two-year price guarantee Visit spectrum.com slash internet for you for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Restrictions apply.
1: If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM.
2: Let's create. Hey, y'all. We're rerunning two episodes today. Enjoy the show. Hi there. Welcome to This Day in History class, where we sift through the artifacts of history seven days a week. The day was June 13, 1911. Luis Walter Alvarez was born in San Francisco to Walter and Harriet Alvarez. Alvarez was a physicist who worked on radar projects during World War II, an inventor and winner of the Nobel Prize in Physics. Luis's father, Walter, was a physician and later a research physiologist. And early on, Luis would go to the lab with him. When Luis was 11 years old, he and his dad made a radio together. Later, Luis attended San Francisco Polytechnic High School, but ended up moving to Rochester, Minnesota, while he was enrolled there. His father worked for the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and Luis began apprenticing at the Mayo Clinic's instrument shop and being tutored by machinists while he was still in high school. Alvarez went on to study physics at the University of Chicago, where he got his bachelor's, master's, and doctorate. As he was finishing up his Ph.D., he married Geraldine Smithick. The two of them later had two children, as well as a daughter who died at birth. They later divorced. Luis then completed a lot of work in California— After getting his PhD, he got a job with Ernest Lawrence at the University of California, largely through connections his father and sister had with Lawrence. Alvarez worked on the cyclotron, a type of particle accelerator, in the radiation laboratory at the University of California at Berkeley. He also worked in a metallurgical laboratory of the University of Chicago and the Los Alamos laboratory of the Manhattan district. Alvarez was a prolific scientist, But we'll touch on just some of his discoveries and achievements. He discovered the east-west effect in cosmic rays, a discovery that gave evidence that cosmic rays include positively charged particles. Once he joined the radiation lab at the University of California, he focused on nuclear physics. In 1937, he gave the first experimental demonstration of K-electron capture by nuclei, which was a phenomenon that had not yet been proven he also developed a method for producing beams of very slow neutrons. Alvarez also developed a mercury vapor lamp with one of his students, named Jake Weins. That development established a new standard of length that the U.S. Bureau of Standards adopted. But as World War II broke out, his career shifted gears. In 1940, Alvarez went to work on radar technology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he worked on a microwave early warning system and the Eagle high-altitude bombing system. He also invented the Vixen radar system, which deceived skippers into thinking an allied plane was flying away from a German submarine and allowed attack planes to destroy the U-boats. Luis also figured out a way to help planes land in bad weather when he invented ground-control approach. When Luis left the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, he went to work on the Manhattan Project. He worked on nuclear bombs in Chicago, created detonators for plutonium bombs in New Mexico, and was on the plane that conducted the first-ever atomic bomb test. He was also on the plane that dropped the atomic bomb Little Boy on Hiroshima. Before Fat Man, the second atomic bomb, was dropped over Nagasaki, Alvarez wrote a letter to a Japanese physicist he knew, urging him to tell Japanese leaders that if they continued in the war, another bomb would be dropped on the country. Though Alvarez recognized the horror and devastation that the bombs caused, he believed that the bombs would end the war and bring some sort of peace to the world. He also thought that the U.S. should continue research and develop a hydrogen bomb. After the war, he went back to Berkeley. He designed and constructed a 40-foot proton linear accelerator. He also did a lot of work with large liquid hydrogen bubble chambers. And he helped identify many new particles. In 1968, Luis won the Nobel Prize for his, quote, decisive contributions to elementary particle physics, in particular the discovery of a large number of resonance states made possible through his development of the technique of using hydrogen bubble chamber and data analysis. After this point, he spent a lot of his time studying cosmic rays. His later life took another surprising yet not indecipherable turn. He put a lot of effort into figuring out the details of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And he and his geologist son Walter theorized that an asteroid impact had led to the extinction of dinosaurs and the end of the Cretaceous period. The new theory caused an uproar in the scientific community as it was believed that a volcano had killed the dinosaurs. Alvarez died of cancer in 1988. By the time of his death, he had received several awards and honorary degrees. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you haven't gotten your fill of history after listening to today's episode, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at T-D-I-H-C Podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about Luis Alvarez, listen to the two-part episode of Stuff You Missed in History class called Luis W. Alvarez. The link is in the description. If you listen to this show every day, you probably already know that I have a new show that's called Unpopular About People in History. And if you haven't gotten a chance to check it out yet, please do. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.
0: There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. It'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favourite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio and podcasts with the new Roku Pro series. Your senses aren't better, your
1: TV is. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley and I want to let you know about my new immersive BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Deep Calm. It's all about how to tap into and activate a remarkable system that we all have. Hardwired. Inside of us, our relaxation response, And it's been developed to be listened to at any time you want to really unwind. I hope you'll listen wherever you get your BBC podcast.
2: Hey y'all, I'm Eves and welcome to this Day in History class, a podcast that brings you a tidbit of history every day. And if I sound any different, it's because I am no longer recording from the closet. That was my unofficial studio for a minute. Um, I moved, which required me to switch up the setup. But as we all know here as history enthusiasts, change is inevitable. On that note, I wanted to also take a moment to acknowledge the huge moment of change that we are currently living in. From COVID to the demonstrations that began in response to the murder of George Floyd by a police officer, it's literally a moment for the history books. And if you've been listening to this show for a while, you probably know that I think it is deeply important to cover the history of Black people around the world. And you also probably know that I care about covering the history of social movements, Black protests, and of resistance generally and black lives matter to me forever and for always. I hope that y'all can look back on some of the episodes that we've done in the past on black revolutionaries, organizers, artists, and uprising as well as the episodes that detail the injustices that Black folks have faced because of racism to gain some perspective and some context and to develop informed opinions. I hope that y'all find a way to take action and you can find resources online on how to help the efforts against police brutality and racism. You can protest. You can donate to the families of people affected by police brutality and you can donate to bail funds. If that's not something that you can do, you can also share anti racist resources. And you can do things like have hard conversations with people who you care about. You have the tools. So stay safe out there, y'all. Be bold and don't be afraid to learn and unlearn. Now, let's get into today's episode. The day was June 13, 1971. The New York Times began publishing excerpts from the Pentagon Papers. The Pentagon Papers, officially called the Report of the Office of the Secretary of Defense Vietnam Task Force, contain a history of US political and military involvement in Southeast Asia from 1945 to 1967. In June 2011, the complete report was declassified and released to the public. In 1967, US Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara commissioned a report on the history of the Vietnam War. The exact reasons McNamara commissioned the report are unclear and remain a subject of debate. McNamara claimed that he wanted a written record of the US's involvement in Southeast Asia to preserve for scholars. Neither President Lyndon Johnson nor Secretary of State Dean Rusk believed that claim. Some people believe that McNamara ordered the report to help Robert Kennedy get the Democratic presidential nomination in 1968. Regardless, the study was completed in 1969. It was made up of 7,000 pages bound into 47 volumes. That included 3,000 pages of historical studies and 4,000 pages of government documents. 15 copies of the report were made. Some of the people involved were concerned about the paper being destroyed or leaked. At the time, the federal government classified the Pentagon Papers as top secret. But Daniel Ellsberg, who had worked at a think tank called the RAND Corporation, contributed to the study. He opposed the Vietnam War. The report revealed that U.S. involvement was greater than the government had acknowledged. Among many other topics, it addressed the overthrow of South Vietnam's president, Gó Dinh Diem, the buildup of U.S. forces in Vietnam, and the Johnson administration's response to pressures for negotiations. With the help of his former colleague, Anthony Russo, Ellsberg photocopied the report. When he took the info to the National Security Advisor and US senators, they refused to hold hearings on the papers. So he took the report to Neil Sheehan, a New York Times reporter. The New York Times was the first paper to publish parts of the Pentagon Papers, starting on June 13, 1971. The first article published was titled Vietnam Archive, Pentagon Study Traces Three Decades of Growing U.S. Involvement. In it, Xi'an said that the study, quote, demonstrates that four administrations progressively developed a sense of commitment to a non-communist Vietnam, a readiness to fight the North to protect the South, and an ultimate frustration with this effort, to a much greater extent than their public statements acknowledged at the time. The Times published three articles about the study in two days. A federal court injunction forced the paper to stop publishing the articles. But soon, the Washington Post began publishing articles on the Pentagon Papers. And on June 30th, the Supreme Court decided that the injunctions the Nixon administration sought against those publishing the papers were unconstitutional prior restraint. Ellsberg and Russo were charged with conspiracy, misappropriation of government property, and violations of the Espionage Act. But the charges were later dismissed due to investigations that took place during Nixon's Watergate scandal. The release of the Pentagon Papers incited international controversy over U.S. actions in Southeast Asia. In 2011, the entire study was declassified and released with no redactions. I'm Eve Chefcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And as always, if you have any comments or suggestions, you can send them to us at thisday@iheartmedia.com. You can also hit us up on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We're at Podcast. Thanks again for listening to the show, and we'll see you tomorrow.
0: If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better, your TV is.
1: Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley, and I want to let you know about my new immersive BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Deep Calm. It's all about how to tap into and activate a remarkable system that we all have, hardwired, inside of us, our relaxation response and it's been developed to be listened to at any time you want to really unwind. I hope you'll listen wherever you get your BBC podcasts.